from just west of the Ward Place Gate on the San Diego campus of Seton Hall University. He is the prodigal son of Marlboro Township, Mike Dizzy Dizzeri, class of 2001. I am persona non grata at the Maplewood Municipal Pool, Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997. We are the number one Seton Hall Pirate podcast in San Diego. We are Left Coast Pirates. And how are you today, Michael? Cold and wet, Tommy. This rain is killing me. It feels like I'm back on the East Coast. Isn't that the truth, though? But even though it's a rainy day here in San Diego in February, Mike, I feel like it's Christmas morning for me. I feel like I'm 13 years old again. I'm glad you feel like you're 13 because you sure don't look at it anymore. Ain't that the truth? You know, by this point in time, you know me well enough. What do I consider the holy grail of Seton Hall basketball? That's an easy one. That is the 1989 Seton Hall men's basketball team and their run to the NCAA finals. Oh, my goodness, you know me so well. But, Mike, you know, I became a fan of Seton Hall on a chilly Wednesday evening in December 1987. It was a 92-84 to win at Walsh Gymnasium against the Gales of Iona. And as luck would have it, Mike, the following season was the season you just made mention of, the run to the championship game. For me, nothing compares to that, Mike, and I get excited about anything and anyone who has a connection to that team. Well, I, as much as you know, I follow Seton Hall and you call me the encyclopedia. I was I was just still a little kid back then, almost like, what, 10 years old? So I don't have the fond memories of that team that you have, but I got a treat for you. Today, we have a special guest for you, Tommy. Clark Holly, class of 1990, is joining us. Clark was the first scholarship student athlete for the Pirates golf team, playing from 1986 to 1990, while serving as the team captain for his last two seasons. As an accomplished golfer, Clark is a four-time Essex County Country Club champion and was the 1986 New Jersey State High School champ when he played at Milburn High School. He later returned to the hall as the head coach of the golf team, picking up from the success from over a decade ago, as he was named Big East Coach of the Year after guiding the team to a Big East championship in his very first season. His tenure didn't last that long as he decided to pursue the family business and stepped away from his post. But you're probably wondering, what the heck does Clark Holly and Left Coast Pirates have anything to do with the 1989 championship team? Well, that's the exciting part. Clark had a front row seat for the pinnacle season in Seton Hall men's basketball. In addition to golfing, he was the men's basketball team manager in the 1988-1989 season. So we are thrilled to have him join us and take us through his perspective on that magical run. And we welcome Clark Holly to the show. Welcome, Clark. Hi, guys. Nice to speak to you. Th- thank you for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. So, Clark, I-, I think people would be really interested in hearing how you actually became the student manager. Well, uh, actually, back in high school, I was uh, also a-, a golfer and actually was being recruited by a few uh, schools. And believe it or not, there were some biggie schools I was looking at and, and Rutgers and Providence and Villanova and Seton Hall. And uh, the one catch that actually Seton Hall had was that I had grew up and lived all my life, you know, Maplewood, Milburn, South Orange area. There was a course that I played at Essex County Country Club that various Seton Hall people would go up there and play. And through mutual people that we knew, I got to 
opportunity to play with BJ one day and actually played 18 holes actually with, uh, at the time was Sue Regan was uh, the associate athletic director who was a friend of my mom's and the four of us played. And then afterwards I got to play an extra nine holes with, with coach. And uh, at the time, you know, he really nice guy and very engaging. And, and uh, when it came time to uh, being recruited to Seton Hall assistant basketball coach, a guy named Howard Rupert was the one recruiting me. And I was, you know, being offered some scholarship money. And I actually mentioned, but my favorite spectator sport was college basketball. And I, there would ever be, a, you know, chance that I could be a manager also on the basketball team. And he, you know, coach knew me, Carlos Samo, and he talked to him and they said that'd be fine. And, you know, the way the schedule was in wintertime wasn't much you know, golf stuff to do. And that kind of was the extra kicker that would seal the deal to go to Seton Hall and, and become a manager. What did PJ shoot that day? <laughs> he, he he was basically a bogey golfer, but it was, and I don't remember exactly what, but I mean, you know, he, he could have a couple good holes and then he'd have a couple holes where he would kind of not play too well on the holes and you don't pick up or whatever, but he, he's a fast golfer and very engaging to play, to play with. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Now, my <laughs> other question was going to be uh, kind of funny, but you were the one kind of negotiating with him, 19 year old saying, I'll, I'll come <laughs> if I get to be on the basketball team. Well, it was more through Coach Rupert doing it, but I mean, PJ was fine. I mean, and to be honest with you, when I was there, PJ was still going through a little of the dark years there. And so I guess the manager job, there was a couple guys that were doing it, but it wasn't like now where they have like eight or nine managers. So he probably had a little bit of reputation of burning through some managers too. <laughs> you can imagine PJ. All right, he, so PJ lets out the team. He had his refs and his players. Managers were also part of those that he got angry <laughs> at. Also, so. All right, so PJ lets you in, and uh, what what are now the responsibilities for a team manager? It sounds like it's kind of a, like a work in progress as he's developing this role. It was uh, you know during practice there was different preparations uh, you had to do before practice started. You know, getting certain equipment and so forth out there, uh, knowing what the practice plan was and who might be coming by to visit the practice, and yeah, and then even to the point of you know old Walsh gym one you know we, we rotated duties but someone would would uh you know mop the floor before practice somebody would uh, after practice there would be you know laundry and so forth back then that now they have a separate whole laundry department but back then we would have to do it and bring it downstairs and you know the guys would put all their stuff in these mesh bags and you'd throw them in and the next morning come out and get it dried and all that and, and get ready for the practice the next day so that was kind of you know practice duties and then there were different drills sometimes we would help out with as far as just you know retrieving balls or or you know, throwing them back to certain people. And then, uh, so that was that sort of stuff. And then during the games, which was, was, you know, obviously everybody's favorite part was interesting. There was somebody would do video. Someone was kind of behind the bench doing, or usually a couple guys, whatever the guys need, whether they're coming off, having the drinks ready for them or towels. And I had the one job that no other manager wanted. And I actually liked being in the, I was an accounting uh, degree major and, and always was loved stats and so forth was, you know, nowadays, if you look, and it was funny, I was watching uh, coach Willard during the timeout yesterday at the Butler game that he's looking he's talking to the players. And if you look, he's looking down at like a live stat sheet that they're printing out right during the timeout yep. for him. And he's looking, you know, one time he goes, holy cow, they've made eight threes. But so as he's saying that, that's someone now is doing that automated and right there to their hands. But back in our era, it was, you know, pencil and paper. And I, I was pressurized because coach would, would yell out, you know, what was Coop's line? You know, Michael Cooper, you know, what is he from the floor and the rebounds and assists? And he might compare him versus, you know, Andrew Gates, who he wanted to play the three at that time. Wow, or, so you were charting uh, stats you know, I, So I would keep all our individual stats as the game's going on. Field goal attempts, field goals made, free throws attempts made. Offensive, defensive rebounds, turnovers, assists, and I would keep the team total for the other team. So, right, so uh, it was a specialized job to have that stuff 
up and ready pretty quick. But but the good part of it was there was there would be the assistant coaches, and I was like the first manager right there. So I always heard all the dialogue of everything going on, you know, and and uh, he would want to have those that that information yelled out to him or. And then if you ever saw me at a game, as soon as half was over, I was the team's running off and you would see me right there trying to total everything up real fast because he wanted that, you know, two minutes when he's in that locker room that you like, like yesterday's video showed you where those coaches are in that separate locker room. And again, nowadays, everything's so automated and done quicker. But I had to total it up and, and, and get it to him. And it was a, a few funny dialogues that him and I had <laughs> which when I when I give him the stats and he'd question whether I was right or not on something. Clark, did you have any but, uh, direct interaction? with the players did you form any bonds yes absolutely there was a lot of interaction during the um you know practices and then even on the road still keep in touch with a few of the guys but the one guy it was funny when I, the years when we, we did well and when we had 13 players at one point and so when we go on the road you know he, they would pair up players but there were quite a few times that uh the new guy at the time was kind of pookie wigginton if you remember came in as a juco transfer and so sometimes when he would when they if they had all 13 players going on the trip they had an odd guy one manager would stay with them so i used to room with pookie more than a few times on on the road and uh he was in new jersey for for a while 10 years after school we we, we stayed good friends and, and in touch He's now more out on the West Coast, uh, so I don't get to see him as much and, or, or speak to him as much. He'll keep in touch with uh, to some extent, or I run into it games now, whether it's, you know, and, and John Morton I spoke to quite a bit for a few years afterwards also. Again, now that he's coaching, I guess, St. Peter's, but he was doing the tours of different places he coached. You know, I haven't quite been as, as much touched with him in the last few years. But I see Daryl Walker at games and, uh, you know, Terry DeHare, who was a freshman my senior year. There's a lot of guys I run into at the games. Anthony Avent now with his thumb playing, so it's a lot of fun. All right, so let, let's dive right into the season. So going into that year, the, the expectations were might not have been as high. What people don't realize is Seton Hall was picked to finish seventh. I know they made the NCAA tournament the year before, but Mark Bryant had basically graduated. And that senior group as freshmen were 14 and 18 in their freshman year. So with Bryant not there, the expectations were not that high. What was the team's confidence level going into that season while others were doubting them? Right. Um, and I will say this, you know, you're talking about Mark Bryant. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I tell people all the time what, what Seton Hall became, and anybody on that team will tell you, and even, you know, Coach Carlissimo would tell you, is the run that Mark Bryan had for like that two weeks at the end of the regular season uh, and into the Big East NCAAs. But, but like, there, was a, there was like a 10-day, two-week run where he was probably the best player in the country. And I'm, I'm, it was a four-game stretch where he played Villanova, BC, and Pitt twice that he carried the team. And if that didn't happen, what happened the following year never would have had an opportunity. And any any player on that team will tell you that. But then, so I think that by him doing that, they, there definitely was a confidence that the team got from the experience of playing, you know, uh, in that Big East year. If I remember our last regular season game, we lost to Georgetown, like in a doubled overtime crazy game down there in D.C. And then came back up and won, though, beat them in the the first round and then played Syracuse nose to nose and, and lost at the end. Um, but I, the confidence grew through that end of the regular season. And those two games were, were a huge springboard again, to getting this team confident and experience of playing a, a, at a different level. And the reality was though, like you said about with Mark Bryan is, you know, we won the first round against UTEP, but then when we lost, we lost to Arizona because Mark got three fouls in the first 10, 12 minutes. I think a lot of people thought, Oh, once this guy goes, they're not going to um, be as good as they were. And like you said, they were, pick seventh in the conference the thing i remember is though that team had such a confidence from what they had drawn from and worked so hard 
from that year until the following year before it even started. Physically, you could see guys, if you ever look at a pic of, of Daryl Walker from his junior to senior year, how much stronger he got. You know, then Anthony Avent was a player that people didn't realize how good he was going to be that was ineligible his first year and then came but came aboard. You could tell in practice right away, people telling stories afterwards, but you would have like coaches like Coach Hurley or Coach Rafferty come in and visit practice, and they would see the practices of those four, of Ramos, Fulci, Walker, and Avent battling. And now Andrew Gage, remember, got added to that group, obviously, which was a huge factor, and that was from... Australia did a tour with against the Big East, and then PJ coached over there, a Big East team over there in the summer, you know, re basically recruited Andrew to come and try for the year, and that was a huge addition. But the combination of this, the depth we had and, and so how hard they battled each other, that team, I think, was pretty confident going in that they knew they were vastly underrated. And, and you know, no one had an expectation of what happened, but thought we had a much better team than people expected. And, you know, that started right off the bat when they went up to the Alaska shootout and won that. And that and, was a know. bit of a coming out party for everybody. Just for the folks who might not know, they beat Utah, Kentucky, and Kansas in its first three games. So right at the bat, this team was different. Absolutely. And I'll tell you an interesting story. Was So then we go through, we have those three games, and then there was this stretch where we played, you know, teams of more of the local non-conference stuff that wasn't really any big challenges for a while. But then we went down to New Orleans to play in the Sugar Bowl Classic. There was actually a basketball tournament the same, around the same time as the, as the football game was going to happen. And it was Virginia, DePaul, ourselves. I forget who the fourth was, but Virginia played them. But we played DePaul first and put on one a clinic, and we're up, I'm going to say, 25 or 30 by halftime. And then, you know, beat uh, Virginia in a classic methodical way, I'm going to say by 15 or something. And after that game, it was interesting. DePaul had played a brutal non-conference schedule that year. And I don't remember the exact team. I'm mean, saying North Carolina was one, maybe Indiana, and a couple other top-tier teams. And there was a, re a newspaper article that was out there that we wound up getting. Sometimes we get different stuff in the locker room put on the bulletin board of DePaul players being asked after having this tough non-conference schedule, who was the best team you faced so far? Was it North Carolina? They said none of them. They said Seton Hall was the best team by far we've played so far. So that was the first thing that came out. And that was right before then the Georgetown game, which by then, if you remember, when, uh, that Georgetown game was the first sellout at the Meadowlands. People were excited about the team. You know, we're 12-0 and 0 at the time with that epic uh, Georgetown team that had like Mourning and Matumbo on it. I, I want to go back there. to that uh, DePaul game real quick, if you don't mind. So you guys yeah. won that game 83 to 60. So pretty good memory. But you're talking about like DePaul being this really respected program. I, I don't think people remember that DePaul was pretty good back then. It's not the DePaul that we know now. Right. Absolutely. They, they were still, you know, I guess it was a different, uh, you know, they had the great years in the, uh, in the late seventies and then early eighties and then, and then, but still were very respectable back then. And like I said, I just remember that they had this, you know, really brutal, like non-conference schedule because they did that because I think the conference they were at then, I don't remember which one it was, but it was some mid Midwestern conference that wasn't a big conference. You know, it might have been the Horizon or something like that. So they wanted to, they were still good enough that they wanted to play against, you know, the tougher teams earlier in the year. And that's how uh, it was interesting that they, after seeing us, <laughs> how much respect that they had for us versus the other top tier teams at the time. So you already alluded you to know? it. They uh, started the Big East season and I think they won the first game and then they played Georgetown at home in a top 10 matchup. I think Georgetown was number five at that point and Seton Hall was nine so tell me about that game right. I know they I know they won but what was the atmosphere like well I'll tell you you know it's funny certain games are, are indelibly or 
stuck in your mind. And, and, and I would say that that's probably the you know biggest regular season game that Seton Hall ever played because there was stuff that happened there that had never happened before. I remember us driving into the game and, you know, normally you, you would, the Meadowlands back then, you might get it half full, you know, and uh, that was about it for most of our games. And we drove in and we usually get there, you know, like uh, 90 minutes before the game. As we're driving in there, there's already backup traffic going in there. So that gave us a hint that there's people coming early and all that. And I remember the guys warming up. And so you would warm up early before not all the crowds there, but then they came back to the locker room and then, you know, you're ready to go back out for your, your next warm up, you know, with, you know, 10, 15 minutes before the game. And at that point when we're standing, we used to come out this tunnel and in the far upper tier that was packed that no one had ever seen before people in those seats and it was full. So it was just electric atmosphere the whole time, a, a real battle back and forth. And I probably, uh, and I still see him today, and I, I'm introduced by uh, Daryl Walker actually to my uh, nieces and nephews at last year's Big East tournament. And I told them, and I said, guys, you don't realize this, but this guy, Daryl Walker, and they know some old names, they don't know Daryl Walker. And I said, he played Alonzo Mourning and, uh, and Matumbo, and he scored 20 and had 17 rebounds against them. And, and talking about the game being probably the biggest win Seton Hall ever had. That well, was, you, you, you know, look at uh, Daryl's build, and you just you know, don't and think you can go for 2017 against those two twin towers, no? Exactly, exactly. Like I said, he had gotten a lot stronger, and he was a very smart, low-post player. He always was even teased amongst the coaches and players. that He, he didn't jump real high, <laughs> and so <laughs> you wouldn't think he would be able to pull that off. But but he was he was he was a, a very shifty guy under there, and and you know whether he, he you know the pump fake or whatever it was, and, and you know him on that or, or draw the foul and go to the foul line uh he was great with that and he was a very good foul shooter and i'm sure there's other guys that all i don't remember who you know played well that night I mean, it was a team effort but his was kind of one that that really stood out from uh, you know against the two big um horses that they had there and that was the thing we had with these four guys up, up front they kind of took turns of who was going to be the guy that step up tonight there were other games that ramon ramos did great i remember during the ncaa there was a, there was a game ramon didn't play one and anthony event and franz Volsi came off the bench and had some great games that that was the biggest thing this team had was pj had so many answers to turn to when somebody was struggling you know here or there you know whether it would be john you know john morton would have a huge game or if not andrew gaze and sometimes if they were struggling michael cooper would then have a lot of minutes and play well and it was, you know, too deep at every position. And, and that was, a, a you know, the biggest strength that we probably had, along with how well they played as a team, you know, in the defense. Well, it was obvious that P.J. had answers throughout most of the season. The team goes on to go 25-5 and five heading into the Big East tournament. But it wasn't without a couple of stumbles here and there. Following that Georgetown game, you guys went up to Syracuse and got the doors blown off of you by 24 right after that Georgetown win. And they, they probably could have been top five in the country yes. if they had pulled off both of those wins. They lose to Syracuse on the road. They lost to Syracuse back at the Meadowlands, and they also lost to Syracuse in the Big East tournament. What was about that Syracuse team that gave Seton Hall fits where they lost three times in one season? Right. Well, I, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, too. Uh, that was the bugaboo for P.J., and uh, was any player that you ask on that team, what's the one regret they had? In their four years, we never beat Syracuse. And it was something like 27 or 28 games in a row that they beat us before you know the, the Hare-Walker group beat them. Uh, was the first one to beat them, and then got somewhat of retribution. Eventually, finally, to them that that one beatdown we had them in that uh, Big East tournament years later. But uh, yes, I did, you know, 
Syracuse back then, had, first of all, had a tremendous team themselves, and they lost the lead eight. But that was we're talking Derek Coleman, Sherman Douglas, Sykley, and 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 you know Bayheim back then played a lot of zone, and uh, he just knew how to. He was a, a little bit, I would say, as far as in-game coach and, and and prep for a team to take away your best option. You know, almost like a Bill Belichick under the Patriots, and you know, and actually we lost to Pitt that year twice too. Um, it was kind of funny that literally I think even though we had seven losses on a year, we only lost to four teams. Those two. Pitt, Syracuse, Georgetown, and then the final to Michigan. Well, there's really no shame um, in losing that Syracuse team. It was, like you said, it was Derek Coleman, Sherman Douglas, Billy Owens, all players that went on to play in the NBA. And I didn't get to see this guy play, but it was a guy named Stephen Thompson that almost finished with 2,000 points his career yes. as well. Yes, and actually he was one of the guys that actually would hurt us a lot. And I remember that sometimes when they would do scouting on it, saying how him and the guy Howard Trish would, would do certain things that you didn't uh, see. Thompson was his thing. He ran the floor better than anybody, and and he would get so many transition baskets because as you're going back, you're stopping the ball, and he would just do a beeline, and they would find him. And there was a couple games that he really hurt us just on the transition and also just slashing and you know getting offensive rebounds. You're more worried about all the other stars that they have, and he he was like their their secret uh, weapon that that hurt a lot of teams and, and us especially. So we get bounced in the semis of the Big East tournament, but it doesn't really hurt us that badly when the NCAA tournament seedings come out. We get got seeded at three, which had to be a major accomplishment for this team. The tournament starts. We get two kind of cupcakes coming in the first two rounds, but then we run into the Blue Bloods. Indiana, UNLV, Duke, and then finally Michigan in the finals. What are your memories of the tournament? Well, actually, now back then, and uh, I can tell you some stories that PJ sometimes is very tough on, on managers, but one of the things he was very good at, I'll be honest with you, is that when we went on trips, he, he fought to get as many managers to go on the trips as he could. And uh, he was always very, very good as far as if the team ever got awards or anything, that he made sure the managers were included. And so, and, but to be honest, not all managers could go to every round. The two seniors were going to go to every round. And then I guess there was about four or five other ones that could go uh, next. And I was one of the more senior of the underclassmen managers so I could pick and it was a good thing I did because actually I went to the Arizona trip which was the first two rounds which was uh, beautiful out there and uh, it was a great atmosphere but the team was, was great about you know as much fun that they would have when it came time to play they were really focused. I remember the um, sorry, uh, I'm blanking I, I know Evansville is the second team we beat. The first one was against uh, was Utah. Missouri, was Missouri State. Uh, well South of Missouri State. Both did. Like South of Missouri State had the guy Charlie Spoonauer coach and they, they kind of played a massage style basketball to slow you down and you know we kind of went back and forth for the first 25 uh 30 minutes but but that team started with those games and carried all the way through that whole run there was the stretch if you ever look at the last 10 minutes of those games we did two things very well one we defended unbelievably well the team's shooting percentage went way down during that last 10 minutes and the other thing is once we got a lead we used to have this offense called green which was like a double stack delay it w we worked it like a charm when, when we got behind that if guys try to overplay certain things they would go back door or they'd come up a screen and then if teams got far time they, they would foul us and we were an excellent free throw shooting team and and i, and I said that was part of pj that you know he would there in practice tell them they got to make x you know 75 percent or higher as a team and they'd all be shooting front end of one and one so if you missed one it was like going over two and they'd have to shoot over 75 percent otherwise they'd be running like practice wouldn't end until they did that so although they ran a few times during practice it definitely paid off come the ncaa so if i understand this correctly you did not get to go to the next round, which was the Sweet 16, where they played Indiana Correct. and UNLV? 
I, I was at the Final Four, but I was not at that round when we were out in Denver to play Indiana and uh, UNLV. And actually, I couldn't anyway. That was when my golf season, the first golf tournament started. And I didn't know we were going to go that far when I first signed up to be a manager. And I, was, I remember playing at the Naval Academy in a golf tournament. And I actually had, uh, this is an old-time thing that people may a Walkman. So I was allowed to. <laughs> I, I had a Walkman. The coach I'm not, let I'm me wear my Walkman so I could listen to the game as we were playing. <laughs> I was like the update guy for the whole team. <laughs> So that was actually played on Navy. So that and that was the uh, game against UNLV. You know, okay, so we, we all, the the, the uh, Indiana game the Thursday night. So I don't have details of what happened at the games, but just watching it with the golf team Thursday night and then listening to on my Walkman as I was playing in the tournament. On that, that, well, you know, well, that's where I want to go. My next question: that that UNLV team had uh, Stacy Augman, Anderson Hunt, Greg Anthony. You guys beat them by 24 that day, and that team goes on the following year and subsequently the year after. They win the national title. They start this big wing streak they, they go 45 straight actually won 55 of their next 56 games and only lost to uc santa barbara uh, kind of surprisingly did you guys know that you had knocked off that talented of a team by 24 to make it to the final four yeah, yeah I, their main guys I, I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a big guy that was a main guy uh, uh, that, that i think was a senior that wound up not being there the following year but but some of the others were still young and uh you know not quite they weren't all there or as cohesive because actually they were an upset they were the fourth seed and they knocked off number one seed arizona and we beat we were three and beat you know indiana the, the two seed so i think they felt pretty good and again i, I think our depth we knew we could wear them down like we did everybody else uh but that that you went up with team like, without it wasn't quite the same team that they were the following two years. Okay, that makes which, sense. Well, you you make you allude then, to the fact um, that they wore them down. The the bench scored 33 points in that game, and heading into the final right, four, that's the, the game bench, I'm talking about. I was going to say that the, the bench heading into the championship game had collectively outscored the opponent's bench by 50 plus up to that point in the NCAA tournament. So you talk about the depth and what kind of wore teams down. So at the end, talk to me about how the bench really contributed to this team's success. And that's the game, the UNLV game uh, was uh, the game where Franz Volsi and Anthony Avan actually we were talking about how well you know everybody remembers Ramon Ramos. He was like a rock on that team. Every game, you know, he was consistent 15 points, 10 rebounds type thing. And and Darrell Walker was also the starter. But that was a game where I think just because of UNLV was a little bit more of a up and down team and a little more athletic that it, it, it fed towards that, you know, Ramon was having a tough game that game. I remember and and, and Anthony and, and Franz stepped up to have some huge games. Uh, and I just remember, like you said, that the bench, uh, you know, really came and lifted them. And there was, there was a great play that, that uh, you know, people that, you know, that which we see a video or a highlight of that team playing that game where there was again, where we, we started wearing UNLV down and there was a play where they're trying to score on us and there was a, a steal and then a path and the ball actually touched all five players and wound up into a, 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 a you know a layup at the other end that that, uh, that Brent Musburger has a great call of how it touched all five you know that was a classic essence of what this Seton Hall team was great defensive play sharing of the basketball and to a finish and also at that point like announcing that you could tell UNLV's done you know that they they're worn out there and that just that happened consistently throughout the year we would just wear people down with the great defense that we played and and, and uh, consistent play throughout the game which was a staple of that team so you did go to the final four where we're facing Duke and then yes. finally Michigan what was it like to play a basketball Basketball yeah. game in the kingdom. Well, first off, just even, you know, the first memory I have is, is the shoot around. So, I mean, just going into the kingdom, which is, a, you know, a football stadium. <laughs> 
you know, but they go into a, a shoot around practice and, you know, there's, you know, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I'm going to say 12,000 people there for a shoot around. Just for the shoot around? That's more than we get for a home game now. Right. Just for practice. What they would have basically was uh, you would do your practice as a team, you know, two hours at some remote spot. But then every team that's playing and it had an hour on the court, you know, so they would get used to the rims and the fact that the depth perception of it's different in, in the domes and so forth. because There's so much space behind it. And it also was a good PR thing. So you really had, you know, the people from all four schools, but, you know, and everybody had their hour. So there was, there was just people from Seattle are out there for the final four, the whole experience, you know, and so this is on that Friday before the Saturday final four game, you had an hour there. And I just remember that, that, that you realized then and the whole team knew that this was a, you know, completely different atmosphere, which, I guess you could say carried over to the first 10 minutes of the Duke game, too. <laughs> you already beat me in my next question. So first 10 minutes of the Duke game, they're down 18. PJ calls timeout. Team could have kind of quit there. Who, who knows what's going through their heads? What's the mood in the uh, huddle? And how does PJ kind of address the team? Yeah, so we always carried, you know, multiple managers at the game. Sometimes we would have to add chairs because we would, like I said, PJ like to have five managers work in the game. And one guy would be the sta- uh, on, on the uh, scorer's table, a couple people behind the bench. One was doing video and I was doing the stats. But come to the final four, they had an exact number of seats you're allowed to have, which was like 15. And between players, coaches, the priests, only two managers, it was the senior managers, were allowed, there was enough seats left for to be on the bench. So I was actually sitting right behind press row. First row is where the other managers were. So I wasn't in there during the timeout. But I can. But the thing at the timeout, they said it was Jail Green, without a doubt, kept the guy's heads up. My own story of it, I remember us going down 26 to 8, but I'm in the first row on the stands. And I just remember going up. I actually grabbed like a hot dog and a soda. And in my mind, I'm like, well, it's been a great run. And this is where, how it's going to have to end. It, you know, it still was amazing to be here. Before half edit, and the, the plays that happened right after that timeout was, uh, um, they get the ball down to Ramon. He gets fouled. He scores. And then on the inbounds play, Gerald Green infield it, and we score again. It was like a five-point swing. So right then and there, that was when, like, the team took a collective breath. And from there on, it was like a methodical, you know, wear down, uh, beat down on them. They had Danny Ferry then, and Leighton was actually a freshman, but Ferry was a big scorer. And PJ's thing was, you know, he would go and try to put a very good, one of the better defenders to guard their best player. And he would kind of put one guy, but he wouldn't necessarily double team or do anything exotic with the defense as a stop. Him, he just would tell that person, you make them earn every basket and work real hard so that as the game wore on, his efficiency would wear down. And he wanted to make sure that the other four would not be factors. He didn't want another guy to be a factor. And Ferry scored a lot of points that game. I think he wound up at 35. But again, his efficiency wore down as the game went on. And we basically eliminated the only guy, I mean, Leitner did have a stretch where he played pretty well, but the rest of the guys were, were uh, non fact. And if you look at Quinn Snyder, and I remember there being an article talking about him playing there, he got completely shut down. I I don't think he scored a point and that was Gerald Green's defense on him and he was a big cog in their wheel there so so the team flips the script they they're down 18 they win by 17 Gaze gets hot to end the second half and they're on to the championship game now I know everybody probably wants to talk about the foul call but there's tons of other things that happened in that championship game it was back and forth walk me through the roller coaster of emotions of that title game I, I kind of remember it just being that you know we, we offensively struggled that whole game Andrew Gaze unfortunately 
had a tough game. Uh, they had Glenn Rice, who was a tremendous player. He, you know, I think Andrew was exerting a lot of energy on the defensive end to try to stop them. He tried to maintain it, but, but Rice still was, was at the time like the leading scorer in the whole NCAA tournament, and he was tough stuff. So Andrew really had a struggle with a tough game. They did a good job on us. I, I, my biggest thing is just us never kind of getting into gear. The one guy who played great, scored great, was John Morton. You know, I think finished up with 35 points. But I, I, I just remember that, you know, where most games where after 30 minutes we might be in a close game and up most of the games so far were up you know four or six or eight and we wore teams down to open up a spread to give the UNLV their worst loss in the NCAAs and give Duke their worst loss in the NCAAs at that time and Indiana the, the way we beat them also solid in this game we were down 12 I'm going to say with 10 minutes to go and that's where I guess the defense kicked in a little bit more and and then John Morton went off and we made an amazing comeback to actually tie that game up. Was there any point in time, based on what you described, that PJ thought defensively they should have mixed it up, get Gaze off of Rice, who had 31, was coming off picks the entire game. He was really making them work, and you could see that Gaze was kind of just not as engaged on the offensive end. Was there a, a, an idea to maybe put Michael Cooper on him, or put Morton on Rice, and just get Gaze more offensively in the flow? I, you know, I think uh, PJ was one of, you know, uh, it was kind of an old school that, you know, you, you had a certain style that you played, and a certain plan and, and and if you executed it right that they would stick with it I, I don't remember the specifics of whether i'm sure Coop, michael cooper guarded him for a while too um but you always wanted gaze out there because even when he wasn't scoring he was still such a smart player that he could one he would draw attention from the other team and two he was a really good passer also i just think though you know he just didn't have his shot that night and uh you know part of it was probably working so hard on the defensive end and again if you remember danny ferry scored a whole bunch on us in the other game as long as he had that you know it was if that one guy He's beating us, but we're making him work real hard for it. You know, hopefully he would wear down at the end. And also, but the other part was his philosophy was, I don't want to overplay my hand on one guy and then get beat by the other players and build their confidence up. And and they decided, you know, like I said, a, a really tremendously talented team. I think they're, uh, you know, obviously they were Emil Robinson, but then they had a couple uh, other bigs in there that could uh, that were really good boarders. Oh, and they and, had you know, Terry Mills, just... they had Lloyd Vaught. That was a very, a very right. good team. I mean, it's no, no shame in losing to that yeah. Michigan team. That team clicked into a high gear. They were expected, you know, great things I think during the year and quite not fulfilled them but then once the NCAs came on and then Steve Fisher actually coached them I guess there was like a relaxation to them and, and they you know played great all the way through until the uh, championship game and like I said I you know the fact that we got to them to the overtime was was a tremendous feat based on where we were behind and unfortunately there, there was a point in the overtime where we actually uh, Andrew Gage I think hit one of his first threes in overtime and I remember us going up and we were up three with a minute and a half to go and had a couple opportunities to get up five uh, a couple things, you know, didn't happen. One was, you know, Gerald Green, unfortunately, missed the front end of a one-on-one, which was very rare for him. And John Morton, who had been great all game, if you remember right before the foul ball, um, had, was holding the ball for a last look shot, and it kind of just glazed off of the front rim. But he had made so many big shots, this one didn't go. And then, obviously, you know, him coming down the floor. At that point now, it's a one-point game, and, and probably the worst call um, <laughs> in NCAA Final Four history. Oh, but before we go down and, that uh, road, I want to I go back to the uh, John Morton attempt before Robinson gets the rebound and, and takes it up the floor. So they were 
up by three uh, with two minutes to go. And back then, the shot clock had 45 seconds on it, not the 30 that we're used to today. And you alluded to this earlier in our conversation that late in the game, PJ would like to go to uh, his double high stack offense where one guy's at the top of the, the circle and the other two guys are both elbow stacked on either side. And it's almost like, like a run the clock out stall tactic. You can get backdoor cuts. Somebody can come flash high and get the ball. PJ ran that set twice down the stretch where Morton got the shot late, like seven, five seconds to go on the shot clock and just didn't get a quality look. You think PJ was too conservative in that approach? Or as you said, this was his mantra. He stuck with what got him there, but it looked like they were not ready to get a quality shot in both those sets. I remember the games against uh, Indiana and, and Louisville and then, I mean, not Louisville, Indiana, UNLV and then and then Duke. You know, that was, that set was the coup de grace that, that finally finished them off. So I think, you know, like you said, there was no sense that it hadn't worked before. So he, he went to it again. And, and invariably, we like said, someone would get fouled or, or, or we'd get a, a backdoor look or, or they'd wear down and you'd get an easy, you know, where they stop the pop out and get, and get a 15-foot jumper. But most of the times it was layups or fouls that we got out of it. I don't remember the specific. I mean, I do remember John missing the shot, the last one that, that led to, you know, Ramil's going down and getting fouled. You know, and I got the other one, though, that Gerald Green got fouled and he was a tremendous foul shooter for it and did so many great things. As I mentioned, especially the Duke game. Without him, we wouldn't have won. But unfortunately, that, that front end of the one-on-one was one of the few times he missed. And some people say, oh, you know, if he makes that, we win. We win because if we make the free throws, we go up five and they weren't going to come back from that when the amount of time that was left because they would have to keep fouling from then on. You know, there wouldn't have been enough time. You Otherwise, you would have melted the clock away. But PJ, I will say a couple of things I remember. It was in the locker rooms. I was able to be in the locker rooms at halftime and after the game. And there was guys very emotional. Some were crying and, and, and it was it was tough, you know, but he just said look, how proud he was of the team and everything else. He's so about winning like a team, you lose together as a team. And, and, you know, it wasn't stuff that happened in the last 90 seconds why we lost. His principle was it was what happened in the, the things we didn't do, it, it, mostly in the first 30 minutes that we normally did, that we, we definitely struggled with, is where we didn't, you know, win the game. And that it was, you know, so I, he definitely wanted to deflect it that it wasn't going to be any one play or any one player that cost us. It was, you know, a series of things that happened. And, and I, whenever I watch games now, I say to people, you know, even like yesterday's Butler game, it wasn't necessarily that people were talking about the last shot we did. I'm like, that's true, but maybe we didn't get the best shot off. But how many times during that game did, did we have a defensive lapse that they, they made one of their nine threes on? Or how many, you know, uh, maybe certain plays that we had earlier in the game where we had some layups of some guys so it, it doesn't always just come down it, it, you might see it as the last play but there's always a lot of things in the game that you could have changed the, I, I totally how the game agree would with go you. Tom, Tom you, and I yeah, are going to rant for like 35 things. minutes about that entire Butler game and what did not happen up until the, those final moments so I, I I totally get it so Clark you brought up the foul this should have you been know. the greatest day in Seton Hall history and it ends on that pathetic foul call. How did you feel when this all happened? You know, I, I, you're watching it because it was going down the other end, you know, at the time. No one could see the thought there was any foul there. And, 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 the, and he was not even going up for a shot. You know, he was dribbling and looking to pass off to, I want to say it was the guy Higgins, I think in the corner or something like that. He actually almost, there was no reason to blow that whistle. And I don't know what Clarity uh, was looking at to think to do that. There's stories that he's basically, as, as admitted efforts, he regrets that he did it. You know, PJ was nothing but a class guy, and 
he made sure and nobody and made sure no one the team would go and use that as an excuse. In the end, it made it better because everybody else did it for us. And it wasn't like we had him complain or afterwards or, or players complain. It was, you know, everybody saw it. And, and I always say that of all the NCAA championship games, we may be the most famous runner-up there is. Because anytime you say Seton Hall, people go, remember the first thing they say, oh my gosh, you guys got so jobbed with that foul call at the end of the game. And I'm sure there's plenty of other teams that you can remember national champions, but you don't remember the, the runner-up as well. But everybody remembers Seton Hall's runner-up game. So as much as we'd rather have won, we did kind of, I, I think, get a notoriety uh, from that. Uh, I remember after that game, too, it was just a little extra side thing that uh, we went and had like a team meal afterwards. And it gave time for some of the players to reflect and be pretty proud of what they did. And I remember Billy Packer and Mike Francesa came in to talk to the team and just with Coach Raft and tell them how great, how they played and how well they represented themselves. And it started from there. And then it was like, a, you know, a, a week of just accolades for the team, which made it feel, you know, as much as, you know, you want to win a national championship, they still feel really proud of, of the accomplishment that they had made, you know. We have this session at uh, the end of our interviews that we call Walk the Plank. We ask you five rapid-fire questions. We don't want you to think too long about it. We just want the answers off the top of your head. Are you ready to walk the plank, Clark? Yes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Question number one. Who yep. was more intimidating during the 89th season, Dikembe Mutombo or Alonzo Mourning? I would say Mourning. Seven seconds to go, down one on the scoreboard. Who do you want taking the final shot from the 89 team? It would have to be John Morton. Other than the 89 team that you were a part of, name any team and any season you could be the team manager for. Uh, the 92-93 the, the uh, team. Three words to describe P.J. Carlissimo. He's intense and then sometimes over the top on things, but in the end, a, a really sincere, good, good-hearted person. Best golf course you've ever played on? Cypress Point. What's your yes, handicap? Sir. I'm a zero. Impressive. Clark, you've walked yeah. the plank. Although I, I thought we were going to get a little love and say Tory Pines since we're right here. <laughs> I've actually never played Tory Pines. You'll I have to come out Tory and visit. Pines. We'll take you out. Uh, I, we've we've got a city ID. We get you in for a discount. It, Tom doesn't have a set of golf clubs, though. That's awesome. It was always known as a great layout, but it wasn't like in, anything like it is now, you know, when I was like playing as a younger uh, player. So. Well, Clark Holly, thank you so much for joining us on Left Coast Pirates Live. This was fantastic. I'm in heaven. Thank you so much. Much appreciated again, Clark. Thank you. That was great. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. Mike, that was great. I'm in heaven right now. That was pretty cool. I mean, he gave us some behind-the-scenes looks. He gave you some uh, intense kind of what happened on the bench from uh, from PJ Green. He was giving you perspective on uh, Daryl Walker. I just, there were certain things I was not expecting to hear. I'm pretty pleased. You know, it was really cool when he talked about the four bigs battling all practice long. You know, you had Daryl Walker, Ramon Ramos. You had uh, Franz Volsi and Anthony Avent. These were names when I was growing up that were just big-time names, especially Avent and Volsi, which were local boys. So that's just all sorts of exciting. Think about what this team could go through if they had four bigs battling each other like that. It'd be interesting. Like, like I said, it was it was kind of cool. You can always read about you know the history of of your, your alma mater and, and, and go back to some of the glory 
days. And they typically highlight some of the best guys on those teams and who stood out in the big matchups. But to kind of hear about the role players, to kind of hear about, you know, how the team kind of bonded, th- those are things that you just don't get in some of the, the puff pieces or the individual recaps that you read about online. So this this was pretty cool. Hopefully we can get a couple players on in the future and kind of get a hands-on experience of what actually happened on the court. That That's, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to next. He mentioned Pookie was in Los Angeles. I'm feeling a road trip. I'm feeling a remote session. Might have to do it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, <laughs> check out our other archived podcasts, including interviews with John Yablonski, Mike McEnany, and SHUhoops.com founder Chris McManus. For Mike Dizzy Dizzeri, this is Tommy Chilkaharski, and this has been Left Coast Pirates. Pirates.